Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? We here at What's the Res are dedicated to hosting the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. Today, that conversation focuses on economics and governmental action in the time of COVID-19. We're recording on March 25th. Things are happening and changing so quickly that I'm sure part of this episode will be outdated by the time it airs. But today, I'm joined by Assistant Professor of Economics at the King's College in Manhattan, Dr. Paul Mueller. Paul is an alumnus of Hillsdale College and George Mason University, where he completed his Ph.D. in economics. He is the proprietor of a bed and breakfast in Colorado called The Abbey. He's the, a husband to Catherine, a father of four, and a regular commuter to one of America's most unique college campuses located in New York City. Paul, welcome to the program. Thanks, Josh. Happy to be on it. Well, Paul, before we kind of dive deep into uh, economic questions, help us know a little bit about what you do every day. Tell us a bit about King's College. Uh, what, what's going on with liberal arts education in the middle of this global city? Sure. Yeah, so uh, I've been at King's College since my uh, fifth year, and uh, it's, a, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty neat place. It's a small Christian liberal arts college. Our campus is uh, located in the financial district of Manhattan, so right downtown. Um, we offer, you know, a variety of majors, but, uh, I think what makes us more distinctive is we have a core curriculum that constitutes about half of the classes that all students take regardless of their major. And that core curriculum is built around, um, politics, philosophy, and economics, uh, as well as some, uh, theology classes, uh, in addition to, you know, history and writing and other stuff. So, um, we think about politics, philosophy, and economics. That's the department I'm a part of, uh, is one department. And we think about these disciplines in kind of an integrated way. Uh, and we also kind of approach PPE from more humanities and a more liberal arts approach as opposed to uh, some other PPE approaches today, which is basically trying to blend current economics and current political science and current philosophy um, in various ways, we, we very much look at uh, what philosophy of policy economics has meant in a historical perspective, uh, from a humanities perspective. So it's, we look at modern things. We also look at old things. And uh, it's, you know, again, it's, a, it's an interesting place where we have people from all over the country to come. We have a, a major called Media, Culture, and the Arts. So there are quite a few students who come who are interested in theater and certain stuff in the city. Um, and, you know, we're right in the mix of things. So there's, uh, all kinds of culture around us, you know, food and theater and lots of, uh, various political and social mores and pressures. Um, but it's a neat place to good faculty. Uh, and I have really enjoyed, um, being there, working with the students, working with my colleagues. And, uh, it's not for the faint of heart, but it, uh, it really does offer something pretty unique in terms of being in the city being at the the heart of sort of what's going on today, but also being deeply uh, embedded in sort of the historical liberal arts humanities. What a wonderful combination. I know there's there's nothing quite like the excitement of New York City, or at least that's uh, both of my brothers love visiting New York City. I, I usually go there to fly to somewhere else, but uh, uh, my youngest brother Samuel especially loves to uh, go go there, and he'll just he'll he'll ride the Chinatown bus up. And uh, overnight from Norfolk, Virginia, and then stay there for uh, a day, and then he'll take the bus back the the next evening, and he'll just spend a day in the city. 
Uh, there, there's something about that city that brings together so much uh, financial power and so much cultural power. And then there's so many groups of people that are, are there's really a unique communities throughout New York City, it seems like. Absolutely. Yeah, an amazing, uh, an amazing amount of diversity um, across the city and in terms of like uh, across the different kinds of communities where you can go to one part of town and everybody looks one way and go to another part of town and everybody looks a different way. And in other parts of town, everybody looks different. <laughs> it's sort of all mixed together. So there's kind of a, a passport of communities and then sort of a blending in certain areas of people from different communities. Uh, lots of energy. Yeah, I always tell people it's a, it's a very fun place to, to work, uh, lots to enjoy and to do, and, and uh, a lot of people come through. Um, so it has, it has its attractions. It has its drawbacks, too, but uh, maybe we'll talk about those later. I, I, I'm sure. I'm sure that's going to kind of be uh, adjacent to – most of our conversation today. Well, I know, Paul, one of the interests that you, you, you've been investigating for several years is governmental reactions to economic turmoil. Uh, I was looking uh, earlier today at uh, the book that you came out with relatively recently. Uh, I've got that title as Why the Conventional Wisdom About the 2008 Financial Crisis is Still Wrong. Uh, that seems like a very timely title uh, where on a day when I woke up this morning to see uh, that apparently the the Republicans and Democrats have all come together to agree on a larger bailout. Uh, I was reading one analysis that said it was larger than a bailout in 2008 and one in 2009 combined. Uh, so could, could you summarize the argument that you make in that book for our audience? Sure, yeah. So the, the book is um, kind of explaining and exploring the 2008 financial crisis, which was really significant uh, in all kinds of ways. And basically, what, what I argue is that most people, uh, especially most elites, have, have drawn the wrong lessons from why the 2008 financial crisis happened and how it ended and how it was dealt with. So the conventional wisdom is that there was a lot of deregulation. Wall Street kind of went crazy. Uh, there was, you know, regulators weren't doing their job. There was a whole bunch of greed and speculation and risk and, and so on. And basically, um, people in the market sort of went crazy and were not disciplined and, uh, government didn't do its job to keep everything, you know, keep the, keep the economic train on the tracks. Uh, and then another part of the conventional wisdom is that uh, throughout the crisis, you have this sort of collapse of, of markets, various financial markets, various financial institutions, and that fed into panic and sort of what we call fire sales and this sort of spiraling effect of bankruptcy and then other firms being weakened and going bankrupt and this sort of idea that financial markets were going to fall apart entirely. And it was only... Uh, as the federal government stepped in, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury and the, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, the government bailout, that it was only through government intervention that kind of stabilized things that uh, prevented the market from, from falling apart entirely. And so the conventional wisdom goes. And then the third part, the response, the conventional wisdom is, okay, given that it was a lack of regulation and sort of market speculation that drove this problem, the solution to prevent from happening again is to add a lot more new regulation and then stricter regulation. And so the Dodd-Frank financial reform bill was long and added thousands upon thousands of new rules and restrictions on the financial system. Uh, and so what I argue is that all 
three parts of the conventional wisdom there are wrong. That what caused the crisis was not too little regulation or lack of regulation. It was actually uh, what I call misregulation, that there were a whole bunch of rules, and I kind of, you know, that's not what we're talking about today, but a whole bunch of different rules that I could talk about another time that encourage banks to take on certain kinds of risks that contributed to the crisis, that encourage banks or underwriters, mortgage underwriters, to lower their standards and encourage people to borrow more, um, and then other regulations that kind of um, accounting rules and so forth that compounded this sort of downward spiral fire sales that happened. So there was misregulation as opposed to deregulation or too little regulation. And if misregulation is the problem, then adding thousands of new regulations is not necessarily, in fact, probably not at all the solution, because if anything, you're more likely to misregulate uh, with thousands of new rules than not. And then the other part is that I have just a different take as the minority take on how the crisis played out in 2008. Uh, I think that the, the bigger story, and this actually does tie in directly to what we're talking about today, the bigger untold story, in my mind, is that I think the government responses to the developing crisis in 2008 worsened things dramatically, destabilized markets, added panic, added risk, um, caused caused greater problems for most of most of the actions the government took. Um, and that things may have, have been all right or certainly much better than they, they were if government had done less and done it better as opposed to doing all the, the many different things that it did in 2008 to try to stop the crisis. I find that really interesting because it fits almost perfectly with a typical debate tactic where one of the debate styles that uh, my team is starting to interact with is policy debate where in policy debate, the affirmative side will propose a specific piece of policy legislation that they're affirming in a particular way to solve a problem. But then what you're describing sounds almost like a standard negative response to look at that and to basically say, no, that policy is not that the whole idea of policy of a of policy change is bad, but that particular piece of legislation is flawed and it's going to cause harms in these specific ways. So in terms of policy debate, right. that would be kind of a disadvantage kind of approach. Uh, so I, I love that phrase, misregulation. I might encourage my guys to uh, to borrow that phrase. Uh, this is misregulation the affirmative team is is running. But that's really interesting that this is not anything that is truly just contemporary, that this uh, our current financial situation is related to the financial decisions made in 2008 and 2009 then. Yes. Yeah, in, in, in a variety of ways. Uh, yeah, there's a complicated and, and debated, you know, storyline of how the economy has done and how financial markets have done um, in terms of from from the recession that followed the 2008 financial crisis through the Obama years and the Trump years, uh, and then where we are today with um, stock markets being in a bear market. Are we officially in a bear market at this point? We were. Yeah, I have to look. So the market's been up a fair amount yesterday and today because um, there's going to be $2 trillion being spent in various places in the economy and with different businesses uh, with this new stimulus bill that's going through. So uh, markets are happy about that. Uh, and by happy about that, I should say they see money coming. Now, whether that actually fixes our problems is a different story. Um, but anyway, but before Monday, we were very much in a bear market. Um, yes. And in fact, the declines that we've seen over the past three to four weeks are greater than than any three or four decline we've seen in any period, including 1929. 
Wow. I didn't realize that we had passed uh, that, that threshold of kind of at the beginning of the Great Depression. That's, yep. that's amazing. Yeah, so again, the, the, what happens with the Great Depression, the market ends up falling deeper than it is currently, but not as fast. Um, so you know, you've got Black Monday and Black Thursday and so forth. But, but over a, a three- or four-week period, the markets have never declined you know, upwards of 30%. Okay. In the US. Well, uh, Paul, of course, we're, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Uh, um, I know over the last few weeks, uh, part of what, what led to this conversation, that uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed watching how active you've been on Facebook, because you've been one of the few people, in my circles at least, to question the narrative that the coronavirus is the absolute existential threat that we must stop, no matter what the cost. Um uh, I think it just seems to me that you you at least question some of what has very quickly become a new orthodoxy. Uh, and uh, so I'm rather curious if you could run us through some of your logic. Uh, what what led you to be a bit skeptical of the current narrative? Uh, and what kind of responses have you received from other people as you've expressed some of your skepticism? Yeah, um, I'm trying to think I, I don't mean to, to pigeon. Start. I don't mean to pigeonhole you by calling it skepticism either. If you'd prefer no, a better term, please suggest one. No, 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 no. That's fine. Um, no, that's fine. I think. Um, I think part of part of my thinking on this has sort of evolved as we've tried to see different numbers and see what's going on. Um, the the biggest issue that I see is. Uh, kind of a lack of perspective, uh, where, and, and, you know, this will, I'm sure if we'll touch on this throughout the, the interview. Um, but there's just kind of, I, I think people don't really know how to think about or weigh people dying. Um, so for example, you know, even in Italy, right, which is sort of the cutting edge humanitarian disaster and with all the problems there. So 600 or 700 people die in a day from coronavirus uh, in the past couple of days have been roughly the rates. Um, that seems like a lot, but is it a lot? Like, like is 600 a lot? I mean, you know, how many Italians die on a day just in general from all kinds of causes? I mean, is it 6,000? Is it 10,000? Is it 100? And, you know, their death or daily death rate has, you know, increased by a factor of six. Um, and so what, what I see going on, and this is just sort of a, a human tendency, part of, part of how we're wired is we see stories and, uh, we generalize from stories, uh, that affects both our emotions and our compassion. And we sometimes make, uh, uninformed or, or, um, we, we take actions that may not be called for relative to the actual severity of a problem. And, and to give you an example of this, and, and, and we can come back to this too, where I think coronavirus, I, I should say that, um, that I do think the coronavirus is very serious. And, and one of the things that hindered this conversation, the national conversation throughout, is that a lot of people who are skeptical downplayed the severity of coronavirus of saying, you know, it's just like the flu, you know, maybe a little bit worse, but not much. And this is crazy that we're shutting stuff down for the flu. Um, I think that's wrong. Um, just for people I've talked to and I've reading, like the coronavirus is something very serious and novel in some ways and um, potentially very dangerous. So, uh, so I, I want to say that before I give you this analogy of, of how people, 
have uh, this kind of bias from stories. So, you know, a lot of people are really afraid of sharks and like swimming out deep in ocean water. They're worried that, that a shark will get them or something will get them out there. Um, and that kind of fear is uh, generally unwarranted. Like sharks don't kill very many people in a year, like almost nobody. You're far more likely to die in a car accident or, um, you know, in a hurricane. Or, like, there's all kinds of, so many other ways, so many, so many, many, much, 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 much more likely ways to die. And yet the idea of being out in the water and like being afraid of sharks is a very visceral kind of fear that far outweighs the actual statistics, likelihood, probability of it happening. Um, and so this is one example. There, there are many things we could, we could point to where people have fears of, of things that they feel poignantly or they see an example of or they've experienced, even though it was unusual. Uh, and then that kind of colors their view of how dangerous this activity is, how dangerous this uh, animal is, uh, in ways that really don't make a lot of sense, or at least that we shouldn't be building, you know, significant public policies that everybody has to follow based upon. Does that make sense? I think so. Uh, and it, it, and it, a lot of it, then I wonder if, I mean, honestly, I can see that going in one of two directions. I mean, either, in mass, we become much more educated about all the possible ways we can die, which might mm-hmm. then prompt lots more fear and worry in life because we're constantly we're like, wow, we could die, we could all die today. We really could all die, and here's 50 different ways we're likely to die. <laughs> or, and I guess in both cases, it requires us becoming much more aware of the likelihood of death in a lot of ways. Uh, or we just kind of realize, or or we kind of stoically recognize, today I might die. I could die from coronavirus. I could die from getting shingles. I could die uh, from a random person shooting me in the head. I could die from a car crash. I could die in a lot of ways. And in which case, perhaps the coronavirus is less likely, and I'm going to weigh it amongst with these other things, but I'm not going to disproportionately consider it if I really weigh it against all these other ways that I could die. Is that, is that right? Compared, I mean, is that fitting with your thought there? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, yeah, I think yeah, it's, it's a good question in terms of like what, how should people think about it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, again, people don't think about death a lot or about how many people die or why people die very much. We've kind of, we really kind of pushed that to the peripheries of society, uh, except when it's someone that we know. And, uh, as a result, I think people are just don't have a great way of thinking about it where, you know, death is a tragedy and, you know, seeing people die is tragic. Um, and, and so there's, there's kind of this, this maybe absolutist thinking of like, we have to do whatever we can to try to prevent someone from dying. Um, but, you know, as an economist, the answer is, or the, the response is, well, no, because there are other things that you lose or give up that might be equally good or even more valuable. Uh, I always tell my, my students this, like, you know, if you wanted to save hundreds of thousands of lives this year, um, you could ban driving. Right? I mean, hundreds of thousands of people die from driving in the U.S. every year in car accidents. Um, and yet nobody is seriously recommending that we ban cars or that we ban driving. Um, 
even though it's it's clear it would save a lot of lives, at least in the short term, uh, because it's one of the leading causes of death, um, you know, besides old age and sort of things that come with old age. So, so the point is, we're we're totally willing to tolerate hundreds of thousands of people dying from car accidents, but the idea of that happening from the coronavirus is is different and. And I, and I do have to say, I mean, certainly the contexts are different. There's a lot of nuance here. But but the point being um, that we make trade-offs as individuals. We make trade-offs as communities, as states, as the, as the nation, all the time between how much safety we require on various products, what kind of safety we require in vehicles or on airlines, um, and what people are allowed to do or not allowed to do. Uh, and, and we could have more regulations. We could have stricter laws. There are many things that we could do, states or or the federal government could do, that could lower the number of people who die in a given year, Uh, again, in the short term. But but the reason we don't do it, or one reason we don't do it, is because some of these actions, or many of them, can be extremely costly in a whole variety of ways and can really change, I keep emphasizing the short term, because if you ban driving, fewer people die from crisis this year, but your economy completely falls apart and people start dying from starvation uh, at, at some point if you, if you shut down traffic entirely. And so, in fact, in the long run, the costs would be enormous for a very small short-term benefit. So that's kind of what I've been raising as I've been talking to people is that from the, the epidemiologists, the health community, this is catastrophe. It's sort of an unfolding car accident. Um, and it's also hard because a lot of what people are really afraid about is still weeks away, but it requires action today. And so that kind of makes their case harder to make, even though they're still winning the case on, on the public uh, forum. Uh, but what they're looking at is what's happening in hospitals, how many more people are going to be dying that weren't dying before, um, how are we going to handle that? It's going to be sort of really, really bad. Um, and my question is, you know, I kind of raised is how confident can we be about how bad it's going to get and how bad will other things get with some of the responses that have been taken in terms of telling people they can't go to work and, and not get wages and other sorts of uh, issues that come with shutting down economic activity. So I'm fascinated by how this is bringing up so many – these very economic and policy-oriented decisions and questions are bringing up so many questions that are really I mean, properly considered in the realms of philosophy, maybe political philosophy and, and theology. I mean the question of how do you cope with death brings up an awful lot of personal convictions that are that differ a lot across the American society. Uh, but then what you believe, how you believe government should or should not act is also very much brought up here very quickly. Uh, and, and whether or not we can trust the tools of social sciences, uh, which I'm at least loosely categorizing both the uh, epidemi- ep- I can't pronounce the word, the epidemiologist report and e- economics in some realm of the social sciences, though I'm sure folks who are in the medical field would balk a little bit at that. But how much can we rely on the statistical models to accurately give us information about the future? And it, I mean, if you say, yes, we can trust these models inherently and, and, and to a great extent, well, then the decisions that are made make an awful lot of sense because they're, they're 
conclusions that follow from those premises. But if you're skeptical about the models or if you're curious about the different statistics that have been thrown out, uh, then that then makes these decisions that different counties and states and the nation as a whole are making make a lot less sense. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's that's the challenge why there's so much, you know, division and conversation right now is that it's really hard to know like that that you know, whatever model you use always requires a whole set of assumptions. Um and if those assumptions are off, the model can be off. Um so there is this study out of England um, several weeks ago talking about how, you know, worst case scenario, something like 2.2 million Americans could die from this. And if you look at the assumptions behind that model, that's assuming not only that governments didn't do anything, but it assumes that people don't change their behavior, right? That they basically do nothing differently, even though hundreds of thousands, eventually a million Americans die and hundreds of millions are catching it. It sort of assumes like no change in, in behavior, which is clearly a bad assumption. Um, like even, even apart from what government should or shouldn't do, the assumption that people would like not begin changing their habits as tens or hundreds of thousands of people die from something is totally absurd. And now they get this sort of 2.2 million uh, number that's, you know, really, really high and people begin to freak out. Um, and, and again, it's hard. So like the, I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't study how these things spread. And, um, but, but as an economist, the question is, how, what calculations are we making? Do we know um, what the actual trade-off is? Do we know how many lives we're saving? Do we know how much it's costing? Do we know uh, how many lives it might cost in the future uh, based on what we're doing? And so far, I think the answer to all of those questions is no. <laughs> uh, right, we don't know. Well, well uh, Paul, let's, let's move into a bit more of uh, economic education for our audience. Uh, walk us through uh, your thoughts on this question. Um, what is the economic impact of COVID-19? What happens from an economic perspective when really everything shuts down in the American economy? Well, um, so there are a lot of things that happen, I guess. Uh, the first thing that happens is that, uh, people who are paid hourly stop getting paid, um, which is, you know, tens of millions of people in the U.S. So people stop getting paid. So that's an issue. Uh, businesses that, uh, have fixed costs have to keep paying those costs, even though they're not getting any revenue. Uh, and so businesses that operate on a, a small margin or, the, you know, they're only slightly profitable are going to find themselves going bankrupt, potentially, depending on how long they can't operate for. Uh, and then at, at a higher level, with if you think about like larger companies, airlines and others, you have the issue of these companies uh, fund a lot of their operations with short-term debt, and then they pay it back and roll it over based on funding um, revenue that they get. Uh, but a lot of them have debt from these things, but um, but without the, the income coming from it, they're not going to be able to service that debt. So there's going to be defaults on different kinds of, of loans. Um, 
And, uh, and, and the bigger thing, though, and we can talk about either of those pieces later, but the, the, the bigger thing, though, that I think is, is often missed, uh, including with sort of what the Federal Reserve does and the stimulus bill, is uh, the fact that what the economy really is made of is millions upon millions of people's plans, plans for how they structure their lives, what they do, what they buy, what they sell, where they work, where they live. Uh, and we make all kinds of plans as individuals, as churches, as companies. Um, and the way we make all of these complex plans is built on sort of prices, expectations, uh, opportunity or liberty to do certain things. And what the virus has done, and then what government reaction to the virus has done even more of, is to throw off all of those plans. Right, where we're no longer able to do what we had planned on doing, uh, that we had maybe committed resources or time or effort to. Uh, and so what you have instead of what an economics would call coordination or equilibrium or sort of the, the social cooperation that markets facilitate is now you have various forms of disequilibrium where plans are uh, either abandoned or they're disrupted or they're no longer feasible. And no stimulus package is going to be able to remake the fabric of these plans and, and how they interact. Uh, and, and the longer we go, the more disrupted longer-term plans are. So right now, you know, people's vacation plans might be messed up or, you know, the quarterly plans for companies are messed up. But if this continues on, people's vocational plans may change. Their family plans, like how large their family grows, may change, whether they get married. Uh, whether they companies invest in various industries that, that that you have kind of I would argue the potential for compounding disequilibrium uh, the longer that government sort of restricts economic activity. Um, I've seen several examples of those just in the last two weeks. I I know of three different couples who. We're all planning to get married in the month of March. And as far as I know, all three of those couples are still getting married, but they're having civil ceremonies and they're postponing the public celebration of their marriages until after everything calms down. Uh, at this mm -hmm. point, nationwide, every national debate tournament that I'm aware of has canceled and they're all kind of waiting on the first big one, which happens in, in April, the, uh, the Tournament of Champions at the University of Kentucky. They're going to try an online tournament format, and they're going to see if, uh, if, if that works. And so they may be converting, but a lot of those are just going to be canceled. And the decisions for those are ma being made two to three months out. So it it does. So really, this is not an overnight thing. I mean, this really is that long term ability to make plans is a lot of what's being affected. Then, absolutely. And the other the other big thing I, that I forgot to add as well is not only have plans been disrupted, but plans are continued to be disrupted, or, or not so much you know plans being disrupted, but you have. Uh, fewer plans being formed because of uncertainty. And this is, this is a direct parallel with um, what I write about in the 2008 financial crisis. One of the biggest things that the government got wrong and contributed to the crisis is creating uncertainty, that people didn't know what to expect. They weren't sure how, it would how the government would respond. They weren't sure what the rules would be in this situation. Uh, and I was talking with um, 
a friend just over the weekend who's a pilot for American Airlines, and he was saying, you know, if we just knew more of like when certain policies would end or or when things would improve or we could we could plan a lot better in terms of flights and you know when to cancel and how to manage assets. Uh, but the, there's no there's really no clarity about how the COVID nineteen virus and our response to it is going to play out in you know three weeks, five weeks, eight weeks. I mean, some people are talking about eighteen months. Some people are talking about new normals. Uh, and anyway, so, so not only, so you've got the plans that are disrupted, but you also have this, you know, uncertainty, which I think is fueled in a lot by various government policies that, that, that government officials are not doing a good job of trying to provide predictability and certainty so that people can begin sort of replanning, uh, and picking up the, the pieces, if you will, of what they had hoped to do. So then this... This this is not really necessarily like a this is not really a conservative liberal view of the government, but rather something that that really we all should I mean that but really the fact that people thrive best in terms of being able to accurately predict what's coming, and what role you're you're suggesting that a public policy should have is to enhance that stability, and currently the problem is that we're lacking that stability and we can't make adequate plans for next week, much less six months from now. I think that's right. And I think, um, you know, the way I would put it is is that in order to play a game, you have to know what the rules of the game are. And if the rules of the game are changing a lot or uncertain, you're not going to be able to play the game very well. And so... It's not that people, I mean, obviously if people knew what the future would hold, that would be great. And they could make a lot of money and everything would work out perfectly. There is a lot of uncertainty in the world. Um, and a lot of our activities in our lives are about trying to think about what we don't know and sort of hedge uncertainty and, and sort of um, manage risk. But what has entered in, so not only has the coronavirus entered in and, and people don't know exactly, there's uncertainty around how bad it is, how quickly it spreads, how that will affect me or my family or people I work with and interact with. So that's a lot of uncertainty and, and potential uh, problems. But now the, the idea that, that governments can just simply tell me I can't go to work or I can't run my business or I can't open up for an unforeseeable, for like a, an unspecified amount of time, well, that's you know, that's uh, unusual. In fact, not unusual, it's unprecedented. Um, you know, even in times of war, like World War One, World War Two, you didn't have governments in the U.S. sort of telling people that they can't go to work. Um, and so all of a sudden, this sort of pillar of society or, or, or practice of society that we all kind of take for granted and, and plan on and, you know, have structured our lives around is like pulled out away, and now I figure out, well, when do we get it back and can it be pulled away again? I mean, there's going to be a lot of long-term, you know, analysis and, and thinking about this. Uh, but but the point, uh, again, going back to sort of what I've been saying um, in various forums is it's not that I think that shutting down everything was the wrong move, especially for New York or New Jersey or Washington. Um, well, I think Again, I don't know. I would like to see some more argument and evidence that about how much it will slow the spread. I think 
there's sort of a panic response going on here too of, well, we have to do more, we have to do more, and this is what more looks like, as opposed to this is going to save X number of lives or slow the spread X amount. Um, because if you don't know or can't, don't even give estimates of how much it's going to improve things, right? Going from social distancing and canceling large gatherings to you can't go to work unless it's an essential business. Uh, well, going from one to the next, are we saving, you know, a thousand lives or 10,000 or 500? And then we need to weigh that versus we are going to create, you know, a thousand bankruptcies, 8,000 bankruptcies, you know, a million people not getting paid, whatever, whatever the costs of sort of the shutting down those non-essential services are. We're not really even having that conversation right now. It's all one-sided of the disease is really bad. We need to do what we can to slow its spread. And that's what we're going to do. I think it was four or five years ago that I first ran into a debate judge who watched the same round that I did. And it was a uh, it was a resolution that had something to do. It was a public forum resolution that had to do with gun control, uh, stronger background checks for for guns. And my guys made their argument. The other team made their argument, but the other team had an argument about lives and how by having stronger uh, background checks, more lives will be saved. My team shredded the opposition argument, and they they showed how there was no causal connection between stronger background checks and reducing the number of people who died through gun violence. They they definitively showed that. For the I thought my guys won that round hands down and had it in the bag. The judge called it the other way, and of course in debates. Uh, the, the standard rule is that the judge is always right, but we always complain about it because whenever the judge goes against us, no one's happy. But in that case, it was the first time I'd really hit the the lives impact argument and saw how once you boil the debate down to that, whoever saves more lives, it almost becomes – it's sort of an argument that kills the other side's ability to bring any other considerations into the debate. Because, of course, we're mm-hmm. all going to agree that life matters. Uh, and, of course, as soon as you ask me to like visualize grandma and think, okay, well, wouldn't you do this to save your grandma? Of course, I'm going to say, well, yes, I would stay home for two days to save my grandma. But it really does seem to short-circuit our ability to really weigh the intricate details of the rest of what's going on. So I wonder if that, that too, plays in here somewhere, that there's a... At framing all of this in terms of we're going to save lives is that's I don't want to dismiss that, but it does seem that we're that that's almost oversimplifying the concerns about what will COVID nineteen ultimately do to American life. Well, Paul, let, let's shift from there a little bit. Uh, so, uh, help us think through the logic of government bailouts. Uh, it, it seems that in our very partisan partisanly divided country, the two parties have come together. They both agree that we need a bailout, and they've settled on a $2 trillion bailout program. Uh, help us, why does that make sense? Why will pumping $2 trillion into the economy help things in some way? Or yeah. <laughs> well, I think, um, I think there are a couple of different aspects to it. So one is that a lot of people are going to be in significant financial distress with things being shut down because uh, their pay is tied to working certain hours and they're no longer able to do it. So how are they going to pay rent? How are they going to pay for food? How are they going to pay for all kinds of things? So 
you have, again, tens of millions of people in the U.S. who now have a significant monetary problem where they don't have income coming in, they can't get income coming in any of the ways that they're used to doing, but they have lots of, you know, fixed expenses that they've committed to or that, you know, that required to, to go on living. Um, and so part of this stimulus bill, bailout, so it's partially bailout, partially stimulus, is to send money directly to them. Uh, so there's unemployment, unemployment insurance, um, and then there's also, I think part of this bill is sending money to every, um, every adult in the country. And part of it, I think, is to try to compensate for the lack of economic activity and pay that many people are feeling. Part of it is because there's just so much less spending going on that, um, the idea is that we can extend a certain amount of money. So basically, I mean, one way to think about this is, you know, in the normal course of a week, you have many hundreds of billions of dollars spent transactions between individuals and companies, between companies for all kinds of products and so forth. And what has happened is that hundreds of billions of dollars of spending has dwindled to, you know, low billions. Um, it has dwindled dramatically. And so this flow of money has just sort of ceased. And what this bill, at least in part, conceptually is supposed to do, and I haven't studied in detail to know how much it will or won't, but it's kind of like, okay, private spending has sort of been turned off. And so we're going to try to turn public spending on to kind of maintain the flow of economic activity, uh, particularly financial activity, uh, until the private spending and private activity can begin taking place again. So it's sort of just trying to keep the, the economic life going. I mean, it's sort of like a respiratory a respirator system for the economy then. It, it is. Yeah. At least conceptually, it is a lot like that. And that that's true for the spending. It's also true for you. The problem, and this is again, a connection to the 2008 financial crisis. One of the problems you reach is because, the economy is a complex network of plans, of promises, of, you know, I'll pay you back at this point, and then you buy this at that point. Uh, as you begin to you think about it, it's like, think about this, um, all these different plans sort of being woven together. Think about like a rug with lots and lots of threads in it. As uh, in normal times, the economy is like this beautiful, extensive rug. Um, but now what's happening is all these threads are being pulled out. And as the threads are being pulled out, it's not just, you know, one part of the thread. It's actually weaves its way through the entire carpet. Um, and so it's not simply a, well, we're giving up, you know, $100 billion as a nation or a trillion dollars as a nation to fight COVID-19 and then life back to normal when we're done. Sort of like, no, 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 the, the, the things that we're doing now are going to affect what's happening to people in July, what's happening to people in September, what's happening to people in December. And depending on how, you know, deep we want to go into it and, and the different possibilities, there's a lot, just like there's a lot at play in terms of how the virus can evolve and what the spread looks like, there's a lot at play in terms of how economic damage and recovery looks like as well. There's a whole bunch of different scenarios where some people think we'll have a sharp very sharp recession and then a very quick recovery and other people think it'll be a lot longer. Um, but the point is, uh, 
that if if the government does nothing right now, not only are things going to stop now, but it's going to create sort of cascading failures and problems um, for the foreseeable future if they don't step in to backfill at least some of this spending and some of these activities. So does that mean that this kind of uh, stimulus bailout combination, I mean, would, would you consider that to be the right move from the government at this, or the federal government at this point? In theory, yes. Um, I mean, so in theory, yes. And in practice, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm gravely concerned that an, an inordinate amount of this money is going to be wasted and uh, going to fuel corruption. Uh, it's not going to really solve the deepest problems, but I, so I would, I would write the stimulus way differently probably than they did, or at least probably take out a lot that's in it. Um, but the fact that we need something, I, I would not, um, oppose that right now. And it's not, it's also, it's, it's different from a traditional, uh, free market Keynesian debate, right? Where, where Keynesians say great depression, markets have failed, government, the government needs to come in to stimulate and fix the economy because markets are inadequate and they've fallen apart. That's not what we see going on here. What we see going on here is that governments are literally shutting markets down all over the place. Um, and so it's not a failure of markets or free markets here. And so it's not a, a stimulus in the traditional sense of, well, you know, the market needs a little bit of help because it's insufficient, you know, in itself and spontaneous order, kind of sense of visible hand isn't working. It's more of, you no know, government's shutting everything down. Uh, and if you're shutting everything down, you've got to do something else to sort of compensate it because people weren't planning on everything being shut down and have made commitments and plans and all these things are tied together that completely fall apart unless you sort of backstop it in various ways. Uh, and again, on the level of if you just think about as a matter of justice for people to be prohibited from getting their livelihood is – uh, really radical to say you can't earn your bread is a really radical uh, thing to do. Uh, and so on the philosophical side, I think there are significant reasons to be concerned about some of the more extreme government responses here. Even if it slows the spread, it's not clear that that philosophically, leave us out of the economics, but on a moral perspective, whether it's right to tell people that they're not able to work and earn their bread and, and run their business, um, for this sort of abstract, uncertain, you know, potential benefit to other unknown people in society at some point. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that part of it until you said that, but there's, uh, I, I read a, uh, a volume uh, of personalist philosophy last year and spent a couple weekends with a few different personalists. And one of the aspects that I find really intriguing about that philosophy is that they tie an awful lot of human dignity, uh, particularly the dignity that we feel ourselves, not so much the abstract, aha, of course, humans have a certain amount of dignity as human beings, but sort of the, the that sense of, of a healthy self-esteem, a healthy pride in what you do, so much of that is tied to your work. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I had not thought about that as like, that really, that could be a, on one, maybe horrific to go through and very interesting to observe, uh, uh, to, to put it in both frameworks there. Uh, but long term, that could be a really devastating, uh, psychological effect. I mean, just to, to kind of remove that, that ability to work. Um, now how, 
how long? I mean, so I, I'm that that makes sense to me. The if the government is preventing us from working, but we have to have money to keep the economy in movement and alive at some level, then the government's going to provide some of the funds that helps with that. But how long is that sustainable? I mean, even if I get my, even if my wife and I both get a check for twelve hundred dollars, and we don't have any kids yet, so we don't get that five hundred dollars per kid. But um, even if we all get this money. Uh, how how long is that? How sustainable is that? Does that mean the government is committed to continuing to prime the pump? And what does that do? What what's the price tag for this long term? I'm I'm sure it can't just be free money. That that's not possible. Right. Well, that's that's a great question. I think we we don't we don't fully know. Obviously, um, it's not it's not it won't last long, right? What they're doing now might help, you know, the country, people in the country for another couple of weeks, two, three weeks, maybe. Um, but if you're talking about shutting stuff down through the end of April or even longer, it's not going to be enough. Um, and it's also, it's also unclear how, you know, this is going to be paid for in terms of, you know, government borrowing. I mean, at this point, basically what the, the government is, it, is doing is it's basically printing money to do this because the, the federal government is borrowing the $2 trillion because they're not having that in taxes. And currently the federal reserve is buying hundreds of billions of U S government bonds. So basically the federal government is issuing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of debt. And the federal reserve is buying up hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of U S debt. And they're buying it up with money that they create. Um, so that's, that's what's happening at the moment. Now, the reason why that may not lead directly to inflation is because private spending has fallen off a cliff. And so what's going on is you have this kind of supplementing of, of normal private spending and credit with public spending and credit. What the long-term effects of this are going to be, you know, it's hard to say. It depends a lot on how long it lasts and how the economy recovers afterwards and what kind of federal policies are undertaken and, and federal reserve policies are undertaken in the second half of 2020 and beyond. So it's, it's really difficult to say exactly how it'll play out, but this, this is not, I guess to come back and really address the substance of your question, this is, this is basically, um, I'm forgetting the word now, uh, triage. All right. This is basically triage. And, um, it's necessary, but it's not going to make the economy better. And uh, it, it fixes some problems, but it doesn't fix the deepest problems. And the deepest problems of this discoordination of plans, this disequilibrium, is only going to grow worse as time goes on. And so we're just going to have to have a really frank conversation about, well, how do we think about economic costs? It's not just our retirement programs. We're thinking about how will this affect people's ability to go to college in the future? How will this affect um, access to health care down the road, access to um, housing, access to all kinds of stuff? That, that what we're looking at is potential consequences both in, in the quality of life that we and our children can have, uh, and also, again, this I, I keep coming back to this divide between, and you kind of can see this, there's a divide between people who are getting paid and can work from home and people who can't. Uh, and it's mostly people who get paid when they're at home and can work from home in the media, in government, 
with government organizations uh, and medical organizations. They're not working at home. They're working in the hospitals and so forth. Uh, but it's people, the main people who are lobbying for longer restrictions are the ones who are still getting paid. Um, again, not there, there, I'm sure there are many, many exceptions, but there is a kind of difference here with, between how people, uh, are used to earning their bread and, uh, this infringement on liberty may be necessary for a short period of time, but it's significant and I think can't be justified for, you know, a whole lot longer. That's really interesting because I mean that's there. There's uh, as of yesterday. No, I'm sorry. As of this morning, uh, the school, the high school I teach at, uh, we we announced to all of our families that we'll be doing online uh, education beginning when we come back from spring break. And uh, there are parts of our we're, we're all, as teachers we're now all trying to figure out what what parts of what we normally do in the classroom can be done online and. And I, I suspect that the answer is most of it in different ways. Uh, I, I think there's a lot that's possible, and I'm looking forward to kind of learning more about how online education works through this. But there are some things that are simply not reproducible. Uh, and the, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is sports. I mean, you mm-hmm. simply you, – you could do a quiz over the rules of baseball, but you cannot play baseball. <laughs> you cannot be on right. a baseball team – in a time of isolation like this, uh, there there are things there that are I mean, there's parts of the school that are irreducibly complex and require us to be physically present. But I, I had not thought about the the different ways of working and how that might influence what people are advocating for. That's really intriguing. Um, that that would be a fascinating uh, analysis to go through and kind of somehow look at which people are very vocally supporting longer restrictions and then which kinds of work they fit in. Cause I, I suspect you're right. I mean, it's the folks who do more work with their heads and, and, and their words rather than people who are in manufacturing or, or service industries. They're, they're the ones who are probably would be much more inclined. They're, they're much less harmed through this. Right. Yeah, so I've been thinking. I may I may try to write a piece on this in the next couple of days. Kind of, I think it, it characterizes the coast versus Mid America. The you know uh, Charles Murray's coming apart. The the different classes. I think that this is another kind of dichotomy that we'll see very different responses along um, because it affects these groups of people really differently. Well, then uh, let me let me go ahead and ask a uh, maybe more divisive question uh, in there. Uh, so this morning, as I was kind of reading through several different articles, uh, I noticed four different articles from four different news organizations all mentioned a statement that uh, President Trump made about his desire for businesses to be reopened by April 12th. Uh, and then those same organizations, uh, one was from Reuters, one was from AP News, or the Associated Press. I forget the other two, but they were these were like big name recognizable journalistic standard type organizations. They all then had editorial comments underneath about suggesting that the only reason president Trump would say such a thing was because he's wanting to be reelected. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? Is, is it just reelection as his motivation or uh, is president Trump up to something else? Or is it just illegitimate at all to talk about, Hey, let's try and get these businesses back up and running as fast as possible. Well, I mean, Re-election is every politician's modus operandi. Um, it's just a question of how prominent it is at various points in time. 
so of course he cares about that, um, of, of getting reelected. I think, but I think it's, it's not just that. I, I think the reason why he wants to get reelected, like the reason why it would help him get reelected is because a lot of people want that to happen. Um, and a lot of people think it would be good if that happened. So it's, it's not simply like, well, I'm going to sacrifice people to get reelected. I mean, he's going to get reelected if he does, like if this helps his reelection prospects, it's going to be because it's what a lot of people want. Um, in terms of the timeline, I, it doesn't, it, it seems, I, I guess it seems reasonable to me I, what it means by opening everything back up. I, there's a lot of variations here, a lot of, a lot of flavors of, of what that could mean. But if people think that we're going to be, you know, as closed down, particularly um, the bigger states are as closed down as they are today in, uh, what would that be, a week and a half? And now on April 12th, two, I think two, that's like two weeks. Two weeks. Two and a half weeks. Two and a half weeks, uh, yeah. They're leaving it, living in a dream world because there's, there, that's my prediction. I think there's no way. Um, things are going to continue with this level of restriction on what people are able, like people's ability to work uh, for two and a half, more than two and a half more weeks. Um, I sure hope not, because at that point we'll be looking at very serious, very, very serious, I think, long-term economic consequences, sort of Great Depression-esque consequences. Um now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we just go from where we are now to, oh, yeah, just go about your lives, do whatever you want, you know, no restrictions, no discouragement of large gatherings or whatever. It's not that at all, but it's sort of saying this idea that people are not allowed to go to work um, and are not allowed to run their businesses. So, like, it's hard. I, I, I just can't imagine that lasting more than two and a half weeks from now. So that's my own perspective. I mean, even in New York, I think Cuomo was saying um, – that they're already talking about how they can start getting people back to work and getting businesses back open at some point in the not too distant future, because, you know, people can't just live in their apartments for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, this is not how the world or society works. It's not, um, you can't, you can't sacrifice everything for the sake of saving some, um, Anyway, well, and yeah. so much of that goes against uh, our very nature as, as human beings. Uh, I remember there's the a great line from Aristotle that uh, man is by nature a creature designed to live in a polis, uh, where or or take it from Genesis when God said uh, it is not good for man to be alone. Uh, we we end up gathering together in communities, and we we certainly can set that aside for a time. I, I think in this case it, it makes sense. It's a worthwhile sacrifice. But uh, the longer that goes on, I think the more we're going to start seeing people rather naturally subverting that expectation to continually continue staying away from friends and family and large gatherings. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, and something we didn't even touch on, and, and that's fine, but that I just want to highlight for the listeners is one of the, the other things that has really bothered me about the way this has developed is – that uh, that not not even as we're doing all of this stuff, unprecedented stuff in terms of sending people home and restricting gatherings and so forth, we have not done nearly as much as we could and should have to bolster the medical system because it's really medical capacity that's driving everything. It's, it's the fact if we had if we had double the number of ventilators that we have currently and double the number of ICU rooms, 
the world would look very, very different. And so it's actually a lot of sort of challenges in the medical system that's not made to handle what we're seeing or could see and is also not really developed to be a very adaptive, versatile system in, in a short period of time. That's where, in my opinion, we should be concentrating our time, our money, our effort, and not as much like, okay, try to, you know, keep everyone at home for as long as possible to slow the spread. Well, that kind of that kind of approach too would be it would be a bit more forward thinking because the um, I mean I I'm assuming that the existence of this particular coronavirus means that we will like we are like only presumably likely to have additional coronaviruses in the future, which means we need a way to handle this kind of medical crisis if it comes again. And figuring out now how to double our medical capacity uh, or even substantially increase it above what it currently is would be a beneficial thing for American society going forward. Um, hopefully this Absolutely. does not, yeah, th- this it, sort of it, thing is not, this can't be normal. It can't be the normal thing right. to shut down society, shut down the economy for two to three weeks and hope the sickness goes away. Yeah, that's right. You can't you can't plan on doing this every time there's you know a spike in coronavirus because again it's not going to go away. People are going to have the coronavirus in the fall. They're going to have it next spring. Like it's it's too widespread to contain. Uh, I think most people know that. If you don't, it's too widespread to contain. So now you do. Um, <laughs> and so you can't you can't just plan on like oh we had a coronavirus this case here so we're going to shut down the town or shut down whatever for two weeks every time like that's not a sustainable or reasonable yeah. or good way to live. It reminds me of like Dr. Strangelove and like the, the way that people try to, to live in light of nuclear war all the time. And, you know, at some point you have to go on living. C.S. Lewis has written about this really well uh, too, that you have to go on living, you do the best you can and, you know, building medical and hospital capacity is the long-term. And I think the more appropriate way to sort of deal with this, what we're doing right now like I said, it's triage that um, mistakes were made and, you know, the risks were not assessed properly uh, on the front end. And so now we're dealing with the consequences of that where because we don't have the data and we didn't have the preparation and, you know, people didn't take it as seriously as they should have, myself included, um, we're kind of playing catch up. And so shutting down and, and I think shutting down is kind of I think there's a little bit of um you know, imitation going on here. Well, this is what this country's doing. They shut down and this country shut down and this state shut down. So there's kind of, I think there's a little bit of like, well, this is what everybody else is doing. So this is what we should do. I'm not totally sure again, that we know exactly what, how large the benefits of shutting down are, but all that aside, we're doing this because we haven't been prepared in other capacities. And that's the the broader conversation we need to be having uh, as we talk about opening things back up. No, I, I think you're right. You're absolutely right about that. I, it, the thought occurred to me when I watched uh, Governor Cooper's press conference last week, several press conferences ago at this point, uh, that I, it seems that our, a lot of what our elected leaders are doing is that they are determined to act so that they are seen to be acting. And rather than necessarily acting because we have definitely reasonably thought through all of the evidence, all of the arguments, and we are making a reasoned response. What we need to do is get out in front of the cameras and have a plan. Um, and and I, 
it, and as soon as someone does that, it's as if there's immediately the assertion that all of the other mayors and governors and, and heads of state must, in fact, have a plan. And if they don't have one, they might as well do what the other folks are doing. And or, or yeah. they look like they are somehow callous and, and don't care about people's lives. Back to the lives impact again. Yep. Yep. I think I think there's a lot to that. Absolutely. Well, uh, Paul, as we begin kind of wrapping this up, um, uh, so let me get your thoughts about uh, uh, I'm sure as a professional economist, people do occasionally ask you for financial advice. Um <laughs> Uh, considering what we know now, that we, we've seen several weeks of an extremely volatile stock market, we've got a general shutdown of economic activity for an unforeseen length of time, we've got the high likelihood of government checks going out to every American citizen, and uh, we've got increasing number of areas are under stay-at-home or shelter-in-place orders. Uh, do you have any suggestions for economic moves people should make in order to create conditions for future stability? In terms of personal finance type stuff? Probably, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess um, I guess here are a few a few general thoughts. Um, I think that the stock market is generally driven by news and by people's reactions to the news. So when bad news comes out, people anticipate things will be bad for the economy down the road, and so the stock market falls. When good news comes out, like stimulus plan passing, that it's going to have a positive economic effect, then the, the market goes up. The, the, what you want to look for, though, is you want to think about the longer-term trends. I mean, general rules for stock markets is buy as it goes down and, and potentially sell as it goes up or hold as it goes up. Um, but, but my own personal view is that we have yet to see what all the economic consequences of what we're doing will be. And we also don't know how long these various shelter-in-place or stay-at-home orders will be in place. And so it seems to me that there's still a great deal of uncertainty and risk. And my guess is that people are probably thinking that the stimulus is going to do more than it actually will in terms of helping the long-run economy. So I'm still, myself, um, somewhat bearish that, you know, it's not that it's a bad time to buy stocks. They're down a lot from where they were, but um, I'm still holding out. I think that they will come back down some, hopefully nothing like what we saw over the past four weeks, but uh, we are not anywhere near out of the woods. And I think that there's going to be a lot of intangible and unexpected problems that crop up um, over the next couple months. And on, and on the flip side of that, you know, another piece in terms of more generally what the country should do, you know, we had there was that article about cancel everything. Um, I want to write the article cancel regulation. Uh, if you want if you want the economy to recover, recover well and recover quickly, you should be looking at sort of okay, how do we start getting rid of all kinds of rules that slow or hinder the even economy from doing well? And depending on what kind of public policy responses there are and whether there is more deregulation of the thing, it's possible, you know, that entrepreneurs and the economy can rebound more quickly than I'm anticipating. But uh, I'm not at this point terribly optimistic. Uh, and I, I think, again, because of that, there's so much uncertainty that has not been resolved yet in terms of not in terms of the virus itself, so that's important, but in terms of what governments are going to do, uh, I still think there's a lot of uncertainty out there. 
Well, I, I think that uncertainty is definitely still present. And one one place that I've been thinking about that uh, the last few days is in terms of governmental power. Uh, and it seems to me that uh, I, I was initially very curious about whether or not the state had the authority to shut down a private school. Uh, I did a very brief amount of Googling and turned up several articles that all agreed. Uh, the public health emergency powers are across most states are incredibly vaguely worded and they're very broad. And the, the answer was yes. My question now is I'm really curious as to whether or not uh, states and the federal government is going to be willing to relinquish their emergency powers when all this is done. Do you see these emergency powers going away or do you think we're going to see a new level of kind of governmental interference in people's lives as a long term consequence of COVID-19? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I guess I I am thinking that most of these emergency powers will be lifted um, in the next couple months. However, I think that they've demonstrated a capacity that a lot of political actors didn't necessarily realize was there for telling people what to do. And so I think that... Um, the the camel's nose is under the tent, so to speak, and um, we may see the exercise of these powers more frequently than we have in the past, considering we've seen them hardly ever exercised in the past. That's almost inevitable. But uh, I do think there are, are significant concerns that these sorts of, of powers can and will be abused now that it's been shown that they can do them. And so, I don't know, it's still really early to kind of see exactly how things play out. I think if this virus ends up not being nearly as big a deal as people are saying, uh, there are going to be a lot of hard questions asked about why did we do this, and maybe it helped it not become this big problem, but uh, maybe we just overreacted. And so I think I think we still have to see how things play out to really to to have much sense of how likely it is that this will be um, abuse regularly in the future. I think that's a that's a fair uh, good that's a fair analysis and a good word. I'll, I'll try to check my uh, internal conspiracy theorist and, and or wannabe <laughs> dystopian novelist because uh, th- those are both things that have been coming out more recently. Well, Paul, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Uh, where where can folks follow your work online if they want to kind of keep up with you and see what you're doing? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. So I do have a website that's just uh, pauldmuller.com where I have um, some papers and different things. I'm going to be, I think, launching uh, a new website with doing some more regular blogging in a couple months. But you can find it there. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Um, so there's not one place where I where I kind of have all my stuff. The website's a good place to start. But um, you get different things depending on which, uh, which medium you follow me in, but, uh, you can find me active on, on at least those places. Excellent. And, uh, uh, do pitch us, uh, on, on the, your summer Academy program, assuming we have some high school students, uh, who are listening to this, if they made it all the way through our discussion, uh, they, they might be good candidates for, for joining you in, uh, in Manhattan. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I'm, I'm the academic director for a, a program that we run at King's for high school students over the summer. It's a week long program. It, it carries one credit, uh, college credit. And basically you come for a week. There are different, uh, topics or tracks that people do. 
And it's just, it's a really fun blend of academic experience where you get to, you know, have classes with uh, King's College faculty and you have assigned readings and, and um, you know, you do the do some of the academic stuff. But you also get to explore the city. We take them to uh, Central Park and the Met. We go to different, you know, well-known places to eat. Uh, we go to a show. So it's really a very kind of fun mix of academics and the city um, that the students really enjoy. So if you're interested in that, you can find more information about that. It's just uh, called Summer Academy or the King's Summer Academy. You can find it on the King's College website. Um, I plug it periodically on, on Twitter. But it's, uh, I mean, right now, again, there's uncertainty about how everything <laughs> is going to look. We may be running it online this year, which, you know, detracts from, uh, you know, the experience, but then again, it'll probably be cheaper. So that, you know, the world's full of trade-offs, but, uh, you know, we're hoping Lord willing that things will clear up a lot and we'll know more and that, you know, by come July, um, we can really sort of plan on doing more in person again. Well, I certainly hope that things do clear up between now and uh, hopefully by the end of April, maybe into May, we will know a lot more and uh, we'll have a bit more knowledge about how to make great choices. Paul, thank you so much for helping us with uh, the economic analysis today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for another episode of What's the Res? We hope that this episode has been helpful to you. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that in a variety of ways. You can reach us via email at whatstherez at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit with the handle at whatstherez underscore and on Facebook at facebook.com slash whatstherez. My guest this episode has been Dr. Paul Mueller of the King's College. Until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.